most mornings, I wake up in a pretty good mood. I know where I am when I open my eyes, and this is always a relief. I sleep soundly through the night. I generally feel well-rested when it's time to get out of bed. This gratitude happens within the first few minutes of consciousness. While I pee, I start cobbling together the bigger details of the upcoming 24 hours. Appointments, errands, chores, commitments, and obligations. And as if on cue, here comes the anxiety. It's not so much the activities themselves that get me in a lather. Most of the stuff I do during the day is structured and predictable. I set up parameters for myself that help me stay calm and focused. Accountability checkpoints keep me honest. People know where I am and what I'm doing. Problem is, I'm the queen of sky-high expectations. I make unreasonable demands wherever I go. I tell myself I'm entitled to all this and then some. Each assumption a byproduct of my enormous ego. My ego would have me believe no one's calendar is as hectic as mine, that I'm working harder than everybody else, and I deserve much more than what I'm getting. Fear wants a piece of the action as well. Fear alleges I won't be able to deliver on what I've promised, and no one will love me. Fear claims that my efforts will not be recognized or appreciated, and no one will love me. Fear insists the itinerary I've established for myself Back-to-back events arranged with the precision of a highly skilled jeweler will not go as smoothly as planned. And you guessed it, no one will love me. Ego and fear are the loyal valets of my addiction. They cruise up real slow and idle in the cracks of my delicate self-esteem, filling the air with the fumes of mistrust and uncertainty. They try to run me off the road, heading straight for the main sources of my strength, prayer, meetings, and fellowship. Before I even flush the toilet, ego's making bold statements and big decisions. Mary, you are way too important and way too busy to pray this morning. Do it later. By later, it means tomorrow. And by tomorrow, it means never. Fear has no use for prayer either. Why pray when you can worry? Prayer requires patience, whereas with worry, there is no waiting. I can have a big feeling right away. Getting something immediately has tremendous appeal, even if that feeling isn't so great. Worry reminds me that I'm alive. Faith, on the other hand, has taught me that worrying solves nothing. It doesn't mean I care more. There are no trophies for the overly concerned. I must make time for my higher power if I want to enjoy the benefits of his protection and care. So I reach for my prayer books. They help steer my thoughts to a peaceful place where I can share what's in my heart with God. I can't always find the right words on my own. As my mind quiets, I listen for his guidance. Ten to fifteen minutes together is time well spent. I consider my plans for the day. I decide which meeting I should go to and adjust my to-do list accordingly. Of course, ego will propose that meetings are stupid that I was just there yesterday, and I'll be fine if I stay home. But here's a little something I know about myself. Every day, I wake up hungry. If I had to rely on the previous day's breakfast to carry me through the current morning, 
I'd be making choices from a place of deprivation. Yesterday's visit to the bagel bin is long gone from my stomach's memory. I must have new foods coming my way every couple of hours to stay focused and keep my energy level consistent. Otherwise, I act a fool. If I'm going to go the natural route to maintain this kind of enthusiastic lifestyle, I have to eat regularly. And nobody better withhold my bread or cream cheese products unless they want trouble. Similarly, I can't stay sober today on yesterday's message. Routine attendance at meetings is a key component of my spiritual fuel. In the rooms where sobriety gathers in these sacred spaces, I get to hear stories of how problems are met with the same reliable solution. I'm encouraged to share what's going on with friends I can depend on for guidance and support. I'm given the opportunity to serve others in ways that strengthen my own resolve. With every meeting, I feel like I'm becoming a better person. I can't help but think of those two young men from American Werewolf in London backpacking across the English countryside. Everywhere they went, the locals cautioned, Stay clear of the moors, boys. Stick to the roads. I interpret this as, Don't drink and go to meetings. But what do these guys do? They cut straight across one of the creepiest open fields in horror movie history. Fog everywhere. Howling. And still, off they go. Don't sweat it, fellas. You'll be all right. It comes as no surprise that Jack is brutally murdered, that David wakes up in the hospital with a mysterious shoulder wound and a limited ability to process the details of the attack. Ignorance, denial, promiscuity, rotting flesh, it's all there. And nobody wants to talk about what's really going on. It's too scary. Any of this sound familiar? It does for me. Shit gets ugly when I'm careless. My disease thrives on shortcuts and sloppy behavior. It works tirelessly to rekindle our toxic relationship. It will do everything it can to get me back in its death grip. Let me not ignore that fear and ego have been circling the block this whole time. With prayer and meetings scratched from my daily plan of action, they move in on the third essential ingredient that helps make for a well-balanced Mary my sober network. This includes my home group, my precious sponsees, the girls I serve with, book study pals, my star five ladies, true powerhouses of wisdom. They've all got to go. Ego hates friendship and gets loud about it. Why do you keep talking to those douchebags if you don't go to meetings anymore? You should get paid for all the work you do. I'm not making this up. Fear slides in from a different angle with the same perverse motive to separate me from my joy. Nobody cares whether or not you call them back. They already have each other. They don't need you. This kind of thinking breaks my heart. I know it's not true, but I run the risk of believing it is if I wander too far from my program and the fellowship I've come to rely on. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Based on this information, I should be drunk and high right now, but I'm not. And the only explanation I have for this miracle, these distinct changes in my thoughts and actions, is the involvement of a power greater than myself, a power I call God. Toward the end of my active addiction, 
I went to a psychologist, hoping he'd tell me I was losing my mind and recommend some drugs I might like. Instead, he suggested I consider a 12-step support group. I did not agree because I was only drinking two drinks a night, two nights a week. Which was a lie, but what do psychologists know? Why would he think I had a problem with drugs and alcohol just because I showed up to my appointments slurring my words and jacked to the gills? That's no reason to assume the worst. I believe this man was an asshole. One of many in a long line of assholes that had nothing better to do than get in the way of me and my good time, which was becoming less fun and more harrowing by the minute. Still, I went to that first meeting. I don't remember much, but I do recall that strangers approached me with their phone numbers, scribbled on little scraps of paper. Call if you need a friend, they said. A friend? For real? I already had friends. They hassled me about my behavior, insisting I pay back the money I owed, using the word disappointment so I'd feel bad. They wore on my last nerve. So no thanks, weird sober people. You can keep your freaky bliss train moving right on past this station. I'm fine where I'm at. Realistically, I wasn't a decent friend. Parts of me could be, with the easy stuff, like showing affection and getting you to tell me things you might not share with anybody else. I was good at that. I could make it look like I gave a shit about what you were going through. And some of me did. I promise. But deep down, I was more concerned with how I could benefit from your situation and thus restore balance to those areas of my life that were out of whack, which was pretty much all of it. You wouldn't suspect any of that, though, because I'd be calling to see how you were. Maybe even bake you a cake. Show up at your house with it. Surprise! And after you let me in and we caught up for a while, I might ask for a loan. A small one. Thirty dollars sounds about right. Come on, look at how much you have. It'd be for something important, like medicine or school supplies for the child I hardly ever saw because my drinking and using came first. But that last bit was something you didn't need to know either. Let me just tell you what I'd like you to think. And while you were in the kitchen getting us another bottle of wine, I might have lifted some cash from your wallet. Don't blame me. You're the one who left your pocketbook on the couch. I'd be sure to help myself to the contents of any interesting pill bottles I found in your bathroom, too. How did you manage to get a prescription for Xanax, anyway? You haven't got an anxious bone in your body. Now tell the truth. You want a friend like that? Me neither. Nobody does. And I never wanted anyone to find out that's what I thought or did. I was mortified by my behavior, yet felt emboldened every time it happened. And it kept happening. So many times, I was relieved when I lost count. How do you fix something like that? I don't even think it's possible, but through the fellowship of my program that I have come to depend on like I do oxygen, God has transformed the detritus of my very soul. Yes, I'm being dramatic. This is dramatic stuff. And yes, I looked up the word detritus. Here's what it says. In biology, detritus is dead, particulate, organic material. 
Not exactly sure what particulate means, but let's just keep going. It typically includes the bodies or fragments of dead organisms, as well as fecal material. That smelled exactly like me. And as a result of my unyielding devotion to drugs and alcohol, a great portion of my life was absolute shit. My thoughts were shit. My actions also shit. Days and nights of shit in a shit-filled world of my own making. That didn't stop God from working in, for, and through me once I became willing. He showed up in ways I didn't realize were his doing at the time, ways I can barely describe now without crying. God put powerful examples of how recovery works right in front of me, and I couldn't not see them no matter how hard I tried. Folks came up to me with such warmth and tenderness as if I was someone they already knew quite well. They invited me for coffee after the meetings, called on the phone leaving hopeful messages, scared the living shit out of me. I racked my brain trying to figure out what the fuck they wanted. Through these people, I saw lots of things I'd never seen anywhere else. Difficult experiences communicated so honestly Horrific behavior met with compassion, courage, and determination, the likes of which I'd never encountered in my life. They showed me how to trust God, how to tell the truth, and become a real friend. Today I get it, the why of their intentions. They wanted to stay sober. Isn't that what we all want? Those of us who suffer from this cunning, baffling, powerful malady— But none of us can keep this precious gift unless we give it away. Sharing what we know, this extraordinary good news, is a crucial part of the deal. So I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes to stay free.